We're talking about this little mini-series, and it's entitled, Love to Get It, Hard to Give It. Can you say it like that? Can you pretend like you're in Alabama and say it that way? Let's say it together. Love to get it, hard to give it. Now, I say that with great love for my southern relatives because I have some relatives. In fact, I have a couple in Vernon, Texas, and they sound pretty much like that. So they know I'm doing it with love. Okay. But we're going to look at something else that we find sometimes hard to give to others, but we really, really like it when people are giving it to us, and that is forgiveness. I've told you this story. I'll give you the really capsulized version because it plays in so nicely with how it's going to, you'll see how it fits together. But my dad forgave me when I was in high school because I scratched the fender on his pickup truck. Or I should say, I allowed somebody to scratch the fender because I was trying to teach that cute 14-year-old flute player how to drive a stick shift. (laughs) And she's the one who drove it into the chain link fence. But it was my responsibility. My dad forgave me. And the story he told plays into what we're talking about today because he said, you know, when I was your age, I had a very similar experience. And I didn't hear what the whole experience was until years later when I heard it from one of his siblings. (laughs) And it turns out that he and his brother had gotten into an old car, the kind that had a crank in the front, and they were trying to get it to run, but they couldn't do it, so they were going to try to push it down a hill and pop the clutch because that's how you can start those things. What they didn't know was that the brakes didn't work in that vehicle. So they did get it going downhill pretty fast, but it took a four by four post to stop it. So he said, because I have been given that kind of forgiveness and grace in my own life, I'm going to extend that same forgiveness and grace to you. So I'm forgiving as I was forgiven. Can you see where this is headed? (laughs) And he taught me how to sand that part of the old truck down and spray paint it to kind of closely match what was the rest of that old pickup. It was a work truck, so you know. Not that big a deal. But anyway, we're going to see how it's possible to forgive in the same way that we have been forgiven as well. Ephesians 4 is kind of where we're going to look primarily. I'll touch on a couple of other selected scriptures, but if you want to camp out on that one in whatever device that has your Bible handy, maybe even a book, you can open it to Ephesians 4 because we see where Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus about some things and he he gives a list Paul is the list guy I have mentioned that in a number of his letters he lists different qualities like in Galatians we have the qualities that we know as the fruit of the Spirit and here I have titled this his list of maturity markers I think that kind of couches Essentially, it frames what he's trying to present to some of these folks to say, this is how you can tell if you're maturing in Christ. These are some of the things that followers of Christ will start to develop because the Spirit is pouring these qualities into your life because he is the one who does that for us. We can't manufacture them. We get them from him, and that's what it looks like. So there's some of these markers. Let me go down the list for you very quickly, just a capsulized version, and then we're going to camp out on the very last one. It says verses 25 through 32, Ephesians 4. Tell the truth to one another. That's a good maturity marker. There are many people in their early phase or before they met Christ, and they're used to just sort of telling whatever they need to tell, whatever kind of that uh, narrative might be, as long as it suits them and gets them what they want. And he says, no, just tell the truth to one another. Don't sin by letting anger control you, verse 26. Do honest, hard work, that next verse. Give generously to everybody who's in need, verse 28. Use words that encourage others and build them up, verse 29. Can you see how a mature person would exhibit these qualities? 
And then he says, don't bring sorrow to Christ's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Verse 30, you might put an asterisk next to that one if you have something that you can put an asterisk on that page with. And then, verse 31, get rid of bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words and slander. And then, verse 32, our focus today, forgive one another just like God forgave you. That list demonstrates what it looks like when Christ has made it possible for us to put off the old self, which is another kind of uh, picture, word picture that Paul uses a lot. Let's put off the old self, and it's almost like we're putting on a new garment. Let's put on the new self. Let's put on the new creation in Christ, which we get when we trust Christ because he takes off his cloak of righteousness and puts it over the top of us. And that's what happens when we're renewing our minds and our hearts, putting on the mind of Christ, so to speak. All of those are Pauline words and pictures, and I think they're good ones. So the way Paul presents his list, he's showing a contrast about things that we put off compared with the things that we put on. For example, put off lying. Instead, put on truth-telling. Put off anger that controls you, and we'll see that there are some angers that are okay. But instead, put on patience and empathy for others, words that build up. Put off greed, and instead, put on generosity. You see the juxtapositions of these things? And you get the point. So when you see people doing what Paul describes in his list of maturity markers, you can see outward evidence that something is going on inside. And without that outward evidence, sometimes it's tough for us to know if a person is really truly maturing in Christ or not. I think some of the old-time preachers would call that fruit inspecting. They said, well, you can just do the fruit inspection, and my fruit inspection shows that I don't think there's a lot going on down here. But I think that there's something to that. We want to see that there's something happening, and clearly we're not going to get there in one fell swoop. It's not a one pill that you can take and a one-size-fits-all, the panacea of the ages, and bang, all of a sudden you're the perfect Christian. That doesn't happen. That's why it's an incremental little chipping away of the rough edges as God transforms us in this sanctification process over a lifetime. That's what Paul means in verses 23 and 24a, just prior to this list when he says, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. That's what happens in this transformation process. The Spirit is renewing your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, he says in those verses, created to be like whom? Like the God who's transforming you. And I love the way Eugene Peterson, the guy who had done a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, he's in heaven now, but he paraphrased these two verses. He gives you a good mental image of what this transformation is like. Listen to his poetic way of saying it. He says, you should get rid of the old way of life because it's rotten through and through. And then he says, take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. Isn't that beautiful? I think it's a wonderful thing for us to think that God would come inside us, work all that stuff out, and then reproduce that through our actions so that what's coming out of our outward behavior represents the change that he's been working inside of us. Great process. And we're not the ones totally responsible for that because the Spirit is the one doing the work. Um, we saw a character arc in A Dear Sweet Sister-in-Law by Marriage for years, and she passed away suddenly at the age of only 53. 
a couple of years ago, maybe three years. And it shocked everybody. But Joy and I had visited with that brother and his wife in New Mexico where they lived at the time. He works uh, delivering oil different places. And so they were living out in Carlsbad and he had lots of routes where he'd go out to these uh, rental places where he'd pick up the oil and put it in his truck and drive it over to this other place like that and stuff like that. And we got to hear Amy and we got to see what she had become over the years. And Joy had had a good relationship with Amy when some of the others in our family had a little standoffish relationship because when she first married into the family, she was not even a believer yet. So she wasn't even starting the journey of that transformation process. And over time, she got it. She started to embrace these kinds of uh, put off the old, put on the new character qualities. And she had loved a, a particular book that she was reading and she showed it to Joy and she was in a Bible study with some other people. And she was just a different person. You could hear it through her speech. You could see that all this list of maturity markers was evidenced in Amy's outward Experience. So when we went to the funeral and we were at the little dinner afterwards in a church up in northern Michigan, some of the people were describing Amy, but they were describing the old Amy because they hadn't seen the years since she moved down into the southwest. And Joy very kindly but very firmly said, that's not the Amy that I know. You knew the old Amy, but I know the Amy that had a new creation built into her by the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you about the Amy I know. And then Joy just went about sharing all these things that she had heard and known about the Amy that we got to know. And I'm so glad we got to know that before she went to heaven because I have all the confidence in the world now where Amy is. I know she's in the Lord's presence because she had that outward evidence to show what was going on inside and it was being expressed through her conduct. Let me do a, a brief ethical system comparison because this is one of those apologetics items that we need to keep hammering down so that we understand there's a big difference between Christianity and all the other religions in the world. Christ dying on the cross makes everything different for them, but when you compare Christianity with other ethical systems, the Chinese ethical system expounded through the writings of Confucius, for example, or the Greek pagan ethical system, uh, etc., you can see all these things, the Islamic ethical system, they all sound pretty familiar on these behavioral points. They'll say, don't steal, don't lie, develop an honest work ethic, etc. And we think, okay, well, what's different then? Well, I'll tell you what's different. Most of the items in Paul's list are seen elsewhere in other ethical systems and religions. However, Paul and the other apostles, those who wrote what we now consider our New Testament in the Bible, don't present moral behavior as something we can do ourselves by manufacturing these things. They don't think that we can pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps and somehow manufacture this kind of morality. We don't have moral behavior for moral behavior's sake in Christianity. What do I mean by that? Let me explain it this way. Paul never said, put off greed and put on generosity because it's the right thing to do. It's true, it is the right thing to do, but that's not the motivation or the real reason why we should become generous as opposed to being greedy. To boil it down, uh, this reason or purpose for the list of behaviors that Paul has shown us here, Paul says basically, do these things because of who you are. You are in Christ. 
These things are because you're identified with Christ and he is the one who is working these things into your life and they're being outwardly expressed to show what's going on internally. It's not because these behaviors are the right things to do. It's because we're identified with Christ and he's the one who's putting on the new self. When I scratched my dad's pickup, by the way, or when I let that 14-year-old girl <laughs> scratch my dad's pickup, I was given a lesson in forgiveness. He said that he had been forgiven and therefore he was going to forgive me in the same way. Later, when my kids started driving, I found out that was a very important lesson. I was reminded several times of this incident in my past and because I had been forgiven the way my dad had been forgiven, I was able to forgive my children when one of them backed into the garage door that she forgot to open first. And when that same person started to back up because she went too far in a drive-through and turned the wheel for some reason and backed into one of those yellow concrete posts, I was able to forgive in the same way. Was it easy for me to do that? No. <laughs> I wanted to give sermon number 237 on why you shouldn't drive that way. And if you went forward straight, why would you want to turn the wheel when you're backing up, for Pete's sake? But I did not give that sermon. Instead, I said, you know, my dad did something for me a while back, and because of that, I'm going to be able to do the same for you. Now, did you learn something from it? Yes, I did. Good. You're probably never going to repeat that mistake again, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Paul is reinforcing this truth for believers in Christ. Remember who you are, which means also for us, remember whose we are. Who do we belong to? It's the guy who promised his Holy Spirit that he who began that good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ's coming again or until we see him face to face, whichever comes first. Well, we're going to see him face to face either way, but you know what I mean. It's like the 50,000 mile or whatever warranty. <laughs> anyway, I digress. There's one glaring clue about this principle that Paul's giving us, and it's in verse 30, the one I told you to asterisk. The other items in the list say things like, don't lie, tell the truth. Don't steal. Put in an honest day's work. Don't hurt others with your angry words. Instead, build them up. And then right in the middle of that list, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a weird one. That doesn't seem to fit in this list of outward behaviors. Why is that? Because it's a uniquely Christian concept which means it's a very uniquely Christian statement. You won't find that in any of the other world religions. You just won't. You won't find that kind of type of admonition related to the ethical systems we see in Confucianism or in Islam or Buddhism. Our identity in Christ is key. Paul points to our identity in Christ who is the one whose spirit seals us and makes us fit for himself. Here's the thing that makes this transformation process different with Christianity than with all other world religions. When you try to make yourself stop a certain habit or behavior, get rid of a certain attitude, you can try to tell yourself, ooh, I'm not supposed to do that because that's really bad. And then we think, you're a bad person if you do that. Does that ever help? No. You still want to do it for some reason. That's why Paul in Romans 7 gets in before he gives the 8 where he says there's now no condemnation. But before that, he's going, why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? And how come I do the things that I don't want to do? And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who is going to get me free from all this stuff, this bondage of sin and death that I keep heaping upon myself? It's because he understands that we can't just do it in our own strength. 
It's something that God has to do through us, through his Holy Spirit. What we see in Christianity is different from gritting our teeth and praying harder and more fervently and managing ourselves because we're just avoiding that bad thing. Christianity shows us that we can put off the old self and put on the new self because God is the one doing the work. We're just allowing him to do that. As a Christian, I don't look at myself and say, boy, that's bad. Don't do it. Don't do it, you. Don't do it. Instead, I look at Christ on the cross. And when I see what Christ did for me, I don't try to just work harder at avoiding sin. Instead, I say, how could I possibly ever repay what you have done for me? I'll never know how much it cost, like we just sang. I don't know how much it cost him, but I know it was everything. He gave himself up for my benefit. So there's no way that I can ever pay him back. What should I do? Oh, I know. I'll just love him back. You hear me say that a lot because it capsulizes the gospel. And I can say, what's the best way for me to love him back? I'm going to forgive others in the same way that he forgave me, which is why Paul is able to expound that for us. It's such a crucial key thing for us to grasp. Do you know what I was doing when I forgave my own kids when they did things like damaging somebody else's car or maybe doing damage to a relationship by hurtful words or whatever? I was doing the same thing for them that my dad did for me back when I was responsible for scratches on his pickup. Because I have been forgiven, I'm going to forgive in the same way. The way we can forgive others then is not to look at ourselves and not to the person that we need to forgive. We're looking at the wrong people if we do that. Because there's always going to be the comparison game. And we'll always find reasons to say, yeah, but I'm forgiving you something that's far more valuable than the thing that you forgave me for. You know, we just get that crazy comparison game, which is fleshly and it's human. And we turn certain things into idols that way. We're looking at the wrong people. We need to look at Christ. That's why we need regularly scheduled, ongoing, consistent worship times. Corporate worship, like we do on Sunday mornings in our culture, or maybe good ongoing small group discussions around God's Word together. I think both are necessary. Maybe some good personal worship time, reading the Word, meditating on God's Word, putting enough in your mind so that when you have time for your mind to wander, it's wandering to the right places. All that is vital because then we're looking at Christ rather than looking at ourselves or at the person that I'm trying to forgive. The person that I had the hardest time forgiving who hurt me deeply in a very public setting 30-something years ago, I was struggling with that. It was the sin I could not get past. It was the impossible thing for me to do until finally I realized God's Spirit is the only one who can do that through me. And when I saw that guy in a big box store, my first fleshly inclination was to sneak out behind the refrigerators and go home. And I didn't do that. Instead, it was like the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of me and went. <laughs> and I found myself walking toward him with my hand outstretched and my out-of-body experiences saying, why are you doing this? And he reached and grabbed my hand and I said, how are you doing and how is your family? That's the Holy Spirit. I couldn't do that. I can't manufacture that kind of forgiveness. Only God can manufacture that forgiveness because he's doing a work in my heart and it's outwardly expressed through my behavior. Our ability, and this is the good thing, our ability to forgive doesn't depend on us. Man, what freedom there is in that. It depends on who we are and because we're Christ's, whose we are. Now, 
I've told you this story years ago. If Vicki Dixon can forgive, and if she can forgive that, how do I feel about the little things I have to forgive? She's the one that, because I have a cousin who was a prosecuting attorney in a southwestern state at the time, she got to know this lady personally, and so she said, you should write an article and find out what this person's story is like. And so I contacted her. We had a phone conversation. Um, she was not very logical in her thinking. She had that spaghetti brain where it rambled a lot. And you know what that's like. She touched on all the points, but it was, there's a lot of stuff in between the points. And so I said, why don't you sit down with a tape recorder and just tell me your story, and then I'll sort it out and try to put it in some sort of logical order, which I did. And gratefully, a lot of people were touched by that. But Vicki is the one that she found out, somebody called her, that her parents had been strangely and brutally murdered. And the gruesome thing is that the person who murdered them in their own home wrapped them up, put them in the trunk of their own car, drove them out to the edge of town in the desert, and set the car on fire. And then a quick investigation found out that it was her own cousin who had committed these murders. Their own nephew, because he was addicted, he needed money for drugs, he thought they had money, he went in, the rest is history. Vicki, amazingly, found through all these passages about forgiveness, she said, I know I have to forgive, but this is so impossible as a human being. She struggled with that. You can imagine. I mean, I can't really fully imagine. But at the time, finally, because, you know, it takes a long time for things to come to trial and that sort of thing. And she had just been studying and weeping and reading the word and talking with other believers and worshiping and trying to find out, how do I do this? And forgiving somebody doesn't mean that you trust them or it doesn't mean that they don't still have earthly consequences for their actions. Clearly, he had consequences. He needed to go to prison. And he did. But when they had the victim impact statements, Vicki stood up and she read this beautiful statement in which she said, because I have been forgiven, I now extend the same forgiveness to you. And I want to give you this Bible. <laughs> and it, it gets me every time. But she got a Bible that she wrote in and she had some of her favorite passages. And they allowed her to give that to him to take into prison with him. Because she said, I want you to be in prison long enough to read this so that you can have the kind of forgiveness that will set you free forever, even if you can't be set free from jail. That's the most important thing. And she said, I forgive you. Wow. I mean, that drives me to my knees to think if God can use Vicki Dixon, if, he, if she can forgive that, I look at some of the things that I hold a little grudge on, and I think, man, mine is so paltry. Some of these things are so minuscule, and yet I build them up and make them such big things because of my pride, my ego, which I've turned into an idol. And God has to remind me of that and says, get rid of that. Cast it off. Cast off that bitterness that you have for yourself. The writers of Hebrews says that we're supposed to throw off all that sin that can so easily entangle us and entrap us. And that's what bitterness is. And we need to cast that off and learn to forgive people even if they've hurt us badly, because then it frees us from this bondage that's dragging us down. Bitterness, I know this is a weird, I don't know why these analogies pop in, but they stick, and hopefully they will stick in your mind. Bitterness is like a cockroach. When Joy and I lived in Phoenix, we had a little house, and they have irrigation systems out there, so from the canal in the old parts of town, which we lived in, southern Phoenix, you could have water diverted from the canal down into a ditch, and then you could have this little uh, 
chute that you would raise and it would let the water into your yard once a week and that's how you watered your yard. You flooded your yard. But we had these things called sewer roaches in Phoenix and they loved to go where the water was. So we had this lush St. Augustine grass yard that after irrigation we would always have these sewer roaches that would appear. I mean they were just big old honkers. And one time we were lying down getting ready to get into our little twilight zone and fall asleep. And suddenly we recognized that we had a little friend with us in bed. You have never seen two people in one motion <laughs> sit. Our core was really worked out because we sat up and then jumped out of bed both simultaneously on opposite sides of the bed in one motion. It was like, Whoa! we were ninja. It was so cool. And then I did what every good brave person did. I went and got a wet wash, wash rag and I pelted that thing against the wall until I killed them and then I could carry them out and throw them away. It was just one of those, yeah. That's what these sins that can so easily entangle us, like unforgiveness, like bitterness that we keep hanging on to, we ought to throw them off like a cockroach. So here's the thing, folks. If the Holy Spirit starts to bring to your mind a red flag, if it starts going that little, now he may not sound like that in your brain, he has a different alarm system for different people, but he'll get you in your own alarm system. And if you start to sense that, to think, ooh, I'm saying really nasty things, and I still have that desire for that person to hurt the way I was hurt, that's bitterness. You've got to cast that thing off. I say this from personal experience, because when I have finally managed to do that, and I can clearly pray for that other person and say, God, I really want them to come into a full awareness of what they've done and that they, un they understand that what they did was sin so that they can grow through that, be forgiven from that, move forward, cast off the old self and put on the new self. I want that for them instead of, I want them to be hurt like I was hurt. If I start feeling those feelings again, I need to cast it off like a cockroach. And so carry that nice, beautiful mental image with you about forgiveness. Parenting forgiveness, we've all done that. Parents, you know that. Let me aim this teaching for parents for just a minute or two. If we parents never get angry, something's wrong. There are things that ought to make us angry. Now, Paul says we're not supposed to let anger control us. So that doesn't mean that we can just push it away. Our rule of thumb, and this is from Joy, I love that. She's such a good parent. But she would say, it's okay to be angry. You can talk it out. You can even go in your room and cry. You can even yell if you need to, yell into a pillow or whatever. It's okay. You need to express that stuff. But as long as you're using your words, that's a productive way of being angry. So go be angry. But you can't hurt yourself, which means that you can't do anything that would harm yourself, bang your head against the wall or whatever. And you can't hurt things or other people. So as long as it doesn't do harm, be angry. That's okay. There are things to do. That. And I think that was a good rule of thumb. And we weren't perfect parents, our kids would say, yeah. And there were times when my anger had more to do with my pride than it did with a teachable moment and a discipline that teaches. And so at times, I had to come to them and say, I was over the top in how I responded, and I'm sorry. What you did was wrong, and you should have been disciplined, but I allowed my own anger to get the best of me, and I apologize for that. And I think that drew us closer together. Or if I said the reason I was so upset is because I was scared. I, were afraid, I was afraid you were going to get hurt. You're not supposed to run into the street like that. Cars are speeding bullets. They will kill you. 
Don't run in front of a car. That's good reason to be angry. God hates sin because he knows that some sins will hurt his children. And so there are things that we ought to be angry about, but we shouldn't let anger control us. We should learn how to direct that anger into the right way so it's productive. Another thing, and I mentioned this last week, we need to learn how to attack the issue and not the person. I see that done really well by Paul and Peter in the New Testament. They attack the issues, but not people specifically. This is important. I touched on it. Same thing with our kids. We start to evaluate ourselves early in the process so we can objectively attack the problem. And we can hopefully say, this is what will happen if you do this. And we don't want that to happen. And so the problem is, we need to identify things that you need to change so that you don't get hurt. Rather than just flying off the handle and being angry because they might not even know what you're angry about. We need to figure out what we're angry about and communicate it clearly. So when we understand what we're supposed to be angry at, sometimes things that anger God, then when we explain what we're angry about, it becomes a teachable moment, and that's when real discipline happens. And it's a spiritual maturity skill. I'm still struggling with it. Most people who meet me today, and they know me for a short time, they'll say, you are such a calm person. And I say, if you only knew. If you only knew what I struggle with on a daily basis, sometimes internally, but doesn't get expressed outwardly, or what I used to be like early in that character arc stuff, I've come a long way, baby. But I also know that I still have a long way to go. Because there are still things that can trip my switch. I think all of us probably are aware that there are things in our lives that God is still working on. And I'm glad that he does. So here's a, a good phrase and I like this one, don't blow up or clam up, own up. Don't blow up or clam up, just own up. Because blowing up doesn't seem to help. In fact, if anything, it usually just kind of makes a storm for a time and then we all walk away and we pretend like the storm didn't happen. Problem's still there. Or if we clam up, same thing, we're just waiting for the storm to brew until it finally explodes. Problem's still there. But if we learn to identify what it is we're actually angry about and we can communicate that clearly, now we're on the way towards some forgiveness and healing. And then sometimes we're the ones who need to ask forgiveness. The character arc that God's Spirit works in our minds and our hearts requires ongoing practice. Spiritual disciplines help us do that. It puts us, I, I like to think about this, if you look at some of these travel channels and you see people that go to some gorgeous paradise kind of place, maybe like Hawaii, I don't know, and, and there's waterfalls coming down, and, and you go into the shallow pool of cool water that looks aqua in color, and they stand under that water, and it just washes them, and their hair looks pristine, and there's those little lights that are shimmering and stuff. That's what I feel like when we stand in the presence of the Holy Spirit, that his living water is just coming down and washing us clean, and he's starting that work of rebuilding inside of us that gets fleshed out, in these maturity markers that Paul gives us for us in Ephesians 4. And so I think that's why we continually need worship like this, being in the Word like this, and in small groups and in personal Word uh, study. But I remember reading a book one time that drove me to my knees. I'll wind up with this one. It was a true story written by a lady, a mother, who lost her very young daughter. I'm thinking she was six years old, might have been five, can't recall for sure. They were on a family camping trip, and suddenly they discovered that the girl was missing. 
scared spitless. And then a quick uh, inspection of the area, they realized that there was a slit in the tent. Somebody had used a pocket knife and just reached in, took her out from her sleeping bag and took off. Her little body was found just a few days later in a nearby forest. Like Vicki Dixon, you can't imagine. You just can't even imagine what goes through your mind and all the stuff that she dealt with and the anger that she had and what she wished would happen to the guy who had done that to her daughter. I can't, I can't even think about it. Incredibly, she knew because of studying this stuff that she had to forgive for her own sanity, if nothing else. She had to forgive that. So she did exactly what Vicki Dixon did. She asked to actually speak to the guy who had done that to her daughter. And she gave him material so that hopefully he could come to freedom someday. And she recognized that even in that act, by forgiving as she had been forgiven, it was bringing her freedom. It's so counterintuitive. And I thought, that drives me to worship. It drives me to be introspective enough to look at myself and say, what have I been unforgiving about recently? Because when you compare it to that, man, just little tiny anthills when those were mountainous. And so I have to just pray and say, God, please help me identify where I've used my own pride and some of the selfishness as an attitude that needs to be eradicated. Help me to cast that off like a cockroach so that you can fill me up with yourself and I can learn to forgive as I have been forgiven. So my, pray, my prayer for today is that we will all do a little bitterness inspection and that through the Holy Spirit, he will help us shine a light on our own hearts and minds, and that if we need to cast off some things, some unforgiveness or some bitterness, that we'll do that. We'll do business with God, and we'll say, God, please forgive me of that unforgiveness. I need freedom, and I want to offer the same freedom to others that you have given me. Let's pray. Father, this has been a convicting message for me to work through this week, as they usually are. And I pray that you will have spoken to all of us as you've been speaking to me this week as well. And I pray that we'll find some freedom. That not because we can manufacture forgiveness, because we can't, but because we are yours. And because we are owned by you, because you bought us with a price by dying in our place on a cross. Because of that, because of your forgiveness, we can cast off that bitterness, that rage, that anger, the desire to control, the desire to make somebody else hurt the way we've been hurt. Help us to cast that off and to put on the new self that you, through your spirit, are accomplishing in us from the inside out. And then may our outward behavior become fruit that other people can look at and say, wow, that person's different. They've got to have something else going on inside them. And then when they ask us about the hope that we have, we'll be able to compassionately give them an answer for our hope by saying, it's not me. This is a God thing. God is the one doing the transformation. Thank you for that. Thank you that you continue to do that because you're so patient with us. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.